Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, I have an interview with Pete and Steve. Pete and Steve are currently running a Kickstarter for the comic Flux. Pete, thanks so much for joining us and uh, agreeing to be on the podcast. Why don't you lead us off with a, a little bit about yourself and a little bit about this comic? Yeah, no problem. Yeah, um, thank you for having us on. Yeah, I'm Pete Rogers. I'm a British comic writer. I've been writing comics for, I think, about 12 or 13 years. Um, prior to that, I was um, I did a lot of screenwriting courses and then moved across to comics. I started off self-publishing an anthology called 11th Hour, um, and I founded an imprint called Orangutan Comics. Um, and that, that book got nominated for an Eagle Award. And I've gone on to do various anthology stories, one shots, um, did a couple of miniseries, the interactives for Marcosia, um, and co-wrote a book called Zach Ridley, also for Marcosia. Um, I've written a short film that was on the BBC a little while ago as well. So, yeah, and then uh, been co-writing with Steve for seven, eight years, I think. Um, we met at conventions in the UK, and I used to listen to Steve's podcast, um, and we became friends. And I think I was interviewed, I think, on an episode um, talking about the interactives, and we just realised that you know we, we got on really well and had kind of a similar approach to stories. And then um, we've worked on a number of things together, but um, Flux was the first thing we started, um, and that's the book that we're now kickstarting. Very cool. And uh, Steve, how about a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I've been working in comics and writing comics like Pete for quite a while. Um, in parallel, I was also pursuing uh, novels. So I write fantasy novels. Um, I just had my sixth one published in September by Orbit Books. So that's in the UK and, and USA and everywhere. Um, I did some self-publishing comics as well. I did some work for hire for um, Platinum Studios. I did some pitching and developing ideas for them. I wrote a miniseries for them. And then, like Pete said, in parallel to doing podcasting, we met, we started working on various ideas. We've got a few in the works. And then we started, um, decided that Flux was the, the one to go to Kickstarter with first. Very cool. And so um, back to, to Pete a little bit. Um, how much of your time working and doing screenwriting um, influences uh, how you write comics? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I guess it's... Yeah, I guess they're two different things in a way, but they're, they are similar. I think it's been interesting now because I've gone back to starting to do screenplays again uh, in the last couple of years. And I found it much harder now than I did originally because I think, I guess, my how I learned story was mainly through um, screenwriting training. And then I kind of drifted a little bit away from comics. Um, and I went on my first ever beach holiday. And I, uh, as Steve will attest, I'm not someone that can do nothing. I have a real issue with relaxing as a principle. Um, so I was, I'd run out of books well, on the first week of a two week holiday and I really didn't know um, what to do. And I happened to walk into a shop that had a load of, um, I think Incredible Hulk and uh, Batman comics. So I started reading them, reading them then got me to read a lot more stuff and I caught up on you know a lot of the things. And then I read a couple of books actually, um, uh, comic writers on, on, on writing I think it was called and I started then to realize the differences so I I went and basically analyzed a lot of comics the first few comics that I wrote prior to getting published were really they were like screenplays they were um I didn't leave any room for the artist I think it was once the first time I actually had a collaborator draw something and I realized yes you know you can't have two things in a panel you can't stack the panels mm -hmm. um 
and, and pacing once i once i realized the difference in pacing between comics and and film um i think that's when i suddenly clicked that it was two different and then since then i've i've tried my hand at audio uh, drama as well it's I've, I've finally got to the point i think where i just see them as different mediums that you although they're a similar thing that you're you're but i guess in a way like a screenplay really is your unless you're directing it yourself you're basically writing a blueprint for the director and I guess with comics in a way, um, there's an old Warren Ellis quote about um, a comic script is a love letter to your artist. And I think that's very true. And I think once you've got a good collaborator, like we have with uh, Mason, who's working on Flux, then I think once you once you found somebody um, on the art side that you can work with well, then then suddenly it, it falls into place. Okay. And I have a bit of a follow-up on, on screenwriting. Um, I know that like, I think, I've heard a lot that like in screenwriting, like one page of screenwriting should like work out to either, you know, one minute of your television yeah. show or your movie. Um, do you find that like when you, you took a little bit of that from screenwriting and like when you look at a comics page, you're like not necessarily breaking it down to like, this is one minute, but you're like, there's like one thing that should happen uh, or I should accomplish on this page. Yeah. I think that that makes, that does make sense. Um, but I first started, you know, it, this, the screenplay thing probably taught me the discipline of that, that one page, one minute. Mm -hmm. I, when I first wrote comics, I think I thought I was Alan Moore because I do, I mean, the script for the first issue of the interactives, I think is 75 pages long. Oh, wow. Um, and it's a 22 page comic because I think, again, it was working with an artist I hadn't worked with before. I was massively over explaining detail. Um, probably providing too much reference whereas i've gone completely the opposite way now and steve will know this from from writing together is um and in my day job i run a motion design and visual effects studio so i get to read 10 20 film scripts a year um there and the really good writers there's very little on the page there's an awful lot of white space and i've tried uh my best because i'm quite verbose but i've tried to kind of rein that in um and I guess, it, I mean, the contrast for Steve is probably even bigger because he's writing prose, um, which I just don't have the writing chops to do. So, um, yeah. Okay. So that's great. I the, my, my question to Steve was going to be, what challenges does he have coming from the world of prose to, to writing comics? So uh, you led me right into that question. <laughs> Segway. It's, um, it's quite different again. So writing novels is, mostly a very solitary experience. I spend a lot of time in my room in front of keyboard writing. So the first thing that was appealing for comics is working with a team almost from the beginning. And when we're co-writing it, it is from the, the idea, from the concept. What me and Pete tended to do is we'd go away, come up with half a dozen ideas, and we'd pitch them at each other, find one that we really liked, and then we'd work on that one. And then a few months later, we'd do it again. So writing by myself is it is a discipline it's writing novels it's you sit down i have a daily word target i get it done and if i hit my targets every month i get a book in every nine months or if it takes if i'm struggling 11 12 months to do a novel so it's it's a complete marathon whereas writing a script for a comic is something that you, you in theory you could do in a day we've never done that before but i can write it in I know a week and we can bash, pass it back and forward and have a polished script in a month. So it was writing something incredibly short, thinking about screenwriting, thinking about the differences between that and comics 
and relearning some of the stuff. Like when I did self-publishing comics, I made loads of mistakes, all the horrible things that, you know, you're not supposed to do that Pete mentioned. And it was teaching myself from that and working with Pete. We've moved towards something where we understand the flow a little better and try to get things uh, through to the audience and also to the artist. So we don't do the Alan, Alan Moore thing of, Here's a 72-page script for 22 pages of comic. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing as well, working together, um, because I'm working in film and TV all day, I'm, I think uh, visuals first. And because Steve does prose, he tends to think plot first. True. So that's where, particularly, I mean, it's, it's, it happens less and less because we don't actually see each other in person. When we first started work on Flux, we literally did the one at the keyboard one pacing around a room thing, which is probably one of my favorite writing experiences I've ever had. Because like Steve said, it can be very solitary, regardless of what you're doing, you're sitting at your keyboard. But actually the fact that we were kind of bouncing ideas and it's that, that amazing feeling of when you've got a plot problem and you, it's amazing anyway, if you do it on a call or an email, that, that all on your own, when you get that point, you feel like, oh, how am I gonna solve this? And you suddenly get this like um, epiphany. But when there's actually the physically the two people in the room and you get that look on each other's face of like, yes, and you try to type and you can't type as fast as your brain can work, <laughs> that I can't, I can't think of many better things. And um, that's been one of the great things about co-writing. And co-writing with someone who I got on with really well, but we also come at things from quite a different angle. We're not just two people writing the same thing. Mm. It's, it, we, we, we're very much, you know, we bounce off each other because, because we are quite different in our, in our approach. That uh, that sounds really cool. The 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 visual you gave me of of one of you guys uh, hunched over uh, a keyboard, frantically typing, and then the other pacing behind, sort of with the eureka moment, like, oh, let's let's do this. So that 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 sounds like a really awesome way to work. Um, when you guys are uh, pitching ideas to each other, um, are they concepts, characters, uh, situations, or maybe a combination of like all sorts of scenarios? Um, I think it was concepts. I think what we sort of said was come up with a seed of an idea and it could be a few lines or it could be a character moment, but it tended to be, you know, you'd say, you know, X-Files meets Lost in Space and I've got a person who does this and this is a story and blah, blah, blah. And it sort of sums it up in 30 seconds. And then you go, okay, right. And then the other person pitches an idea and we kind of mark our favorites in private and then we pick one or two. And then we settle on one and move forward with that. So that's how it tended to work. I think when we first started working together, we were trying to pitch each other like completely rounded off ideas. But because we've got to know each other better and because we work with each other more, now it might be, I've got this idea that does this, but I'm not sure about this bit. So we've kind of both opened up, I think, a little bit. Um, there's another book we work on at the moment called Hell and Back, where I had a very high concept for that. But there were some things about it I just wasn't sure that would work. And so it, you know, again, you get the one thing about co-writing, you get a free sounding board. Uh, so it was like, well, what about this? What about this? And I think both of us have got the knack of, because we, we consume so much stuff and read and watch so much stuff. We're both looking for the things that could be, that could not work or the things that are leaning on tropes or the, the things where um, the kind of, um, dead ends you could end up in so that's the good thing like we trust each other enough to go okay yeah this idea is great but this bit just doesn't work okay well how do we work our way out of that so even the ideas we haven't taken forward together 
are still stronger for just having talked them through in the first place. So I think our kind of file full of potential ideas, whether we do them together or on our own or whether we do them in other medium is, is still stronger um, for that really. And do you guys sort of, once you pick the one that you're, you're working on, you know, maybe if there's like uh, one that was close sort of in, in competition for being the, the, the project that you were going to go forward with, is that one sort of sitting there in reserve as like the, the number two or the, the, the backup plan or the next to be worked on? Typically, yeah. So we've got another idea that was a very early thing that I had. I just had this concept and I talked it through with Pete and we said, there's definitely something there, but neither of us were sure how we take it forward. So it's kind of on the back burner. It's something that we'll probably revisit in the future. And there are a couple of others in, in, the, in the file, as Pete says, that yeah. we think we'll come back and look again. Um, but we tend to focus. So with, with doing the Kickstarter on Flux, we're spending a lot of time focusing on that. And other things are ticking along in the background, but we're not putting as much effort in as it were. So we're quite single-minded on stuff. Yeah, I think it's the challenge, really, because you can get excited about an idea and want to finish it. And I guess, you know, with Steve's novel background, um, there's an instinct to, to get stuff finished. And I actually think as a writer, you must get things finished. But because you're working with the artist and you, you know, quite often at the whims of a publisher, I think we've got five books we've got to pitch stage and we've got very close to, to landing stuff. Um, Flux was very close with a couple of publishers. Um, and I think we got the, the reason we've ended up on Kickstarter really is because we've both kind of gone, well, you know, what, you know, people can go, oh, yeah, Steve's a novelist. Oh, and Pete works in TV and film. And he used to do, I think he used to do comics. Um, but then they go, oh yeah, what have you, and we just literally walking around to conventions with a file full of like six page starts to stories. But we just want to get, you know, we want people to actually be able to read them um, from start to finish. So that's the reason we kind of decided that, you know, we can wait for a publisher. We can wait for someone to change their mind or for circumstances to change or um, someone who said, Oh, I'll come back to you. I really like it, but it's not for us this year. But you know, when neither of us is getting any younger and uh, you know, we want books on shelves and I certainly want books on shelves again. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we've, um, we've ended up doing this. Very, very interesting. I, I find that uh, a lot of folks that are in the the Kickstarter community, that's sort of the the approach that they're that they're taking. You know, there's there's a there's a certain amount of of gatekeeping in in publishing, and um, you know, you you do sort of get these uh, interest here and there, and and things don't pan out. But it's sort of that spirit of, hey, you know what? I'm I'm not waiting for you guys. I'm I'm going to go ahead and and do this on on my own. Uh, well, that, that's yeah the reason my original first um, anthology book was called 11th hour was because i'd had six things greenlit i was very fortunate i started off writing comics and straight away people at small press level were interested i had one um, story come out through dime store press and then i think i had yeah six things that people had said they definitely were going to do mm -hmm. and either i lost an artist or the publisher stopped trading um i think over about two years i literally had six things now if, I, if people had just been saying no i'd have just carried on and worked away at my craft because people were saying yes but the only thing that was stopping me was was the logistics mm -hmm. that's right that's when i thought you know what I'll, I'll do it myself which is why i basically took those stories and that's what more or less with a couple of other people ian sharman who still runs around the same comics um we that you know, it was called 11th hour because literally the projects were all pulled out the 11th hour. So that's how that came about. So when that got um, an Eagle Award nomination for best British black and white comic, 
that that um, made me feel good because you know I hadn't managed to get it get things sorted through publishers, but I'd done it off my own back and um, it had gone well. Very nice. Um, so I'd like to shift uh, the the focus to a little bit about the the process of of working with a co-writer. Um, why don't you guys explain your, your your process there? So once we've kind of pitched the idea and we've got the basics, um, probably some of it comes from the fact that there's two of us, and also as a novelist, I'm someone who plans my books ahead of time. I'm not like Stephen King, who just writes and sees how it goes and sees how it develops. I have to plan it. And with two of us, we obviously need to know what's going to happen. So what we tend to do is we look at the structure of the idea and we think about, you know, is this an ongoing? Is it six issues? Is it four issues? Is it 10 issues? And we break it into not not arcs, like in a screenplay, you get you know, the three-act structure, the five-act structure, and obviously comics are different. So we have to kind of acknowledge that. And you have to acknowledge that if you can end on an in, a point of interest or a cliffhanger or something, that's another very big difference between the mediums. So once we've got the overall format and the structure of how many issues it is, we then start breaking it down into main beats and then we'll basically work through uh, each issue script by script. I'll do a draft, Pete will polish it, it'll come back to me and we'll keep doing that until we're happy with it. Uh, and then once we've done that, we'll move on to issue two. And some, the weird thing is sometimes when we get to the next issue, things start to change. Um, so you might end up going backwards and tweaking things and then jumping forward and going, oh, we need to put that into issue three. And it's this great thing of, as Pete said, having a sounding board. So I'm constantly checking things or get an idea and I'll suddenly text him and go, oh, wait, we missed this. Or what about this idea? And, and that gets thrown into the pot as well. So it's constantly evolving from the original concept, which is kind of new for me. So it's not it's not a process of like one guy writes three pages and the other guy's working on, you know, three pages at the end. It's sort of like a living document. You guys are um, going from beginning to end, working together, tweaking, um, possibly going back, you know, seeding some ideas here and there once you once you get to the to the end of a book or the end of an arc is is, is, is am I understanding that correctly? I, I think it's kind of evolved and it depends on which story because um and you know it's uh, some of the stories that some certain characters that will make you want to change stuff, other ones that they just work as they are. So I think when we first started we lit, I think the first issue of Flux, the first ever draft we did do 10 pages each. I think one of us did the first 10, the other one did the second 10. Um, and then we rewrote each other and then kept doing that. But I think since then, we've more been inclined to do an issue. And then the other person does a, as a, does a rewrite draft. Uh, I think, um, again, it's because we've been, worked on so many different books together now, um, certainly to pitch stage with it, it does kind of depend a little bit on, on each project, but that, so it's quite fluid. Um, and again, because we know each other well, you know, we do a podcast together, we speak every week. So um, it's, I think a new co-writing relationship would probably work differently. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I've continued to write um, other comics on my own because um, Steve's got his novels to be doing in between. Um, and I just want to keep making sure that I'm still kind of pushing forward with stuff, but also it's, it's good practice as well because um you know, just keep the um, keep the gray matter turning over. Very cool. So let's turn our attention to to Flux, the the book that's currently on Kickstarter. Why don't you give us a uh, a, a synopsis of of what this book is about? 
sure. So it's a science fiction thriller. And in the 1970s, the US government essentially invented time travel. But then the technology was leaked and a bunch of people, terrorists essentially, were using the technology to go back into the past to change the present for their own benefit. So they're constantly rewriting stuff. And the idea came from, you know, all the usual standard places, whether it's Back to the Future or, or Looper or all these great, or even, sadly, Time Cop, um, you know, <laughs> one, of, one of Pete's favorites. Um, and it was the idea of if someone can keep going back and changing things, then the, the, the present is constantly unsteady and just in this massive state of flux. So I thought that there'd have to be some kind of regulation for it. So a new branch of government was established called Purity Control. And they've created this wearable technology called time bands. And everybody wears one in the entire world from the moment you're born to the moment you die. And that protects you from people uh, messing with your timeline. But purity control still exists as this sort of important force. And um, it's almost like when in the past you'd say you have drills at school for drop and cover or, or you know, fire drills in schools. And it's a case of this guy for the last 40 years, Arthur Buchanan, has been going around schools and companies telling everyone why it's important. You must have your time band and you must wear them. And then the book starts with something has happened. A guy, uh, a homeless man, commits a murder and there's something unusual about him and the whole situation. And this detective, Chicago uh, detective uh, Sarah Ramirez, starts investigating and wants to know what's really going on. And uh, the mystery kind of builds from there. Yeah, so we kind of used it's um, it's a, definitely a sci-fi, but it's also grounded in reality, um, and it's a in many ways it leans in pretty at least procedural, um, certainly to make the audience comfortable. So yeah, Detective Sarah Ramirez and her partner Mike McKinney are kind of thrown into this situation, um, and you know, in a in a world where um, things definitely aren't quite what they seem, um, yeah, and but. Arthur Buchanan, the character that Steve mentioned, is um, the spokesman for Purity Control, but they're about to launch Squid, which is their, um, up to now, everyone's um, time band are, are the same, but mm -hmm. they're just about to monetize these things by basically allowing you, a bit like a Fitbit or something like that, but, or an Apple Watch, you can basically choose your color and your design, and that's about to be launched, and that's kind of where the story kind of starts and, and Arthur's retiring because they've got to the point where he's been going out like Steve said to schools colleges and workplaces telling people to make sure they keep their time bands on but now it's become such a for 40 years it's become such a part of of, of normal everyday life that he, he you know they don't need to tell people that anymore Wow, this sounds this sounds super interesting and and right up uh, right up my lane um, as far as uh, you know interest and in, and in, in stories. Um, so, how did you find the the art team for this book? Are these folks that you've worked with uh, uh, in the past, or are these brand new um, uh, people on the art team? Uh, brand new to us on this one. So, there's a Facebook page called Small Press Commandos, um, where people kind of link up and kind of share stuff and i met um mason uh through there we talked a bit for a while about doing something together and we couldn't quite find the right project mm -hmm. and then when when steve pitched this idea to me and we kind of one of the things about the story is it's kind of it's now but it's kind of um well the, the, all the technology has been has been held back um so there's no social media there's no internet so it's kind of 
it's a film set right now, but it's got like a 70s, 80s aesthetic. Um, and actually, uh, Mason's art style has got quite, um, well, not old school, but it kind of has got a, a traditional feel. Um, so it just felt that he was the right person for this book, really. So, you know, we chatted to him, kind of pitched him through the idea. He came back with some ideas as well. And then we've kind of shaped it with him ever since. And it uh, looks like, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, uh, he uh, he does uh, all the all the art chores. He does the the pencils, the inks, and and the colors. Yeah, he's doing pencil inks and colors, and he also did our painted cover as well. So um, one of the things we'll probably be doing from issue two onwards is is bringing in a separate colorist, just because you know, as you said, describing it as chores, I guess there's a lot for one person to do. Um, so we, we'll probably be broadening that out a little bit. And then Sean Reinhardt is our um, letterer um, and has done like pre-press stuff for us. We've worked with him a lot in the past. Um, I've, yeah, I've done a couple of projects with him before and we've, we, he's essentially been, been working with us on all our pitches um, alongside us. Um, and then I've had, yeah, and say because I work in a motion design studio, so our creative director designed the Flux logo, and um, one of our motion designers, Zach, he did our Kickstarter video. So yeah, I've been quite fortunate to get quite a lot of help as well from people, which we appreciate. Yeah, that's uh, that's great to have uh, you know those those resources to to call in and help you out with those those aspects of of the Kickstarter. Um, when when uh, when the art was being worked on, uh, did you get it at sort of like the the layout stage, the pencil stage, the the inking stage to just sort of uh, do checks and say, hey, you you know you're on point, or you know this this needs to to be uh, be tweaked or anything like that? It's a little bit different on this project actually because um, on nearly every other book I've ever worked on, I'll tend to yeah you get thumbnails layouts and you kind of move through to pencils to inks to color um the way that mason works digitally is quite different so he tends to work more in layers mm-hmm. um which um i can kind of get my head around because of my day job so we'll tend to get um you might get a background like uh, a page that's all the backgrounds or the page that's some of the it was when we first was working together it was a little it was um very different i wasn't quite used to it um but then i think once you know you actually start seeing the pages coming through um and the quality of the work is so good you just kind of have to you know um just give him the the free reign to kind of make it work really um but like like with any artist we work with you know the script isn't a bible it's just um an an outline so what will take the main thing the most important thing i always think is is dialogue you know if we've put like eight panels in a page and it's never going to work, that's fine. Change it, but just let us know. The main reason being to let us know before, before changing it is just from a dialogue perspective. Um, I'm a very militant kind of um, Alan Moore, DC 200 words maximum a, a, a page um, divided back by the panels. That's what I do as part of my rewrite process. Um, so it's always good to know how many panels are going to end up on the page. So you can start, doing playing with that when you're looking at dialogues and and captions yeah and so is there a like a for you is there a certain number of of panels that if you get to you start to you start to you feel bad that the, it's too many I, I know for myself that some of the stuff that i did i had the mistake of having like the 12 15 panel pages and now i've been 
I've been learned to to whittle that down and if i get to like six or seven and i I start to get itchy and like nope i can't i can't uh, i can't put any more on this page so do you have you found a spot where you kind of feel like that's the max that you can you can put on a page i think so i think again another going back to like differences between me and steam i think panel count is one difference so i'll be trying to get to like three steve might be pushing to like a nine panel grid Sometimes, but I think my no my my biggest problem is I tend to every single I have written scripts and gone hang on every single page is five but I don't know why mm. rule of three is usually my predominant thing in most things but um, quite often I'll end up with five panel pages um, and then I'll be like well, okay from a rhythm perspective that's going to be repetitive now do we want it to be repetitive do I want the readers to feel there's something going on that's the same so I think there's an element of um, what can you fit on a page what can be drawn but the most important thing particularly in the rewrite stage is okay pacing wise if it's a splash page is it a payoff is it a couple of panels is it something you want them just to move past quickly if you have gone for like a 10 12 panel page are you deliberately doing something with time mm-hmm. um, which i guess on this book in particular is important because um, the subject matter so i guess i think you know um there's an element of I will always try and rein myself in in terms of panel count, um, but the main thing will be looking at the whole script and just seeing how the whole thing flows and and how the scenes break. That that that's become more important to me. I think we've only got one page in the book where there's something like eight panels, and that was on purpose because it's a very I can't really talk about what the page is without spoiling it. But there's a very specific mood that we wanted to create, and um, we slowed it right down for that. So it, it takes the reader up quite a while to read it and to also look at what's happening for a very specific purpose but as pete said i don't think we've actually only got any nine panel grids in this not in this book. one not in this project we tend to try and get somewhere between three and six i guess yeah. is the average yeah i'd say so but it's been interesting i spent years thinking oh, you've got to vary you've got to keep moving it around and then you know then you read tom king and you're mm-hmm. just like you know this is you know arguably the most talented person writing comics at the moment um maybe other than brian k vaughan but that's my personal uh, preference um but you know he's quite often giving himself the nine panel grid to work with and from i a big believer that um in any creative endeavor restrictions are very helpful i think if you've got a completely open um canvas uh that's when you'll just get lazy or you're complacent or you'll just or um so experimental that something doesn't work so i actually think that sometimes having some sort of constraint is helpful so even the fact that we were like right okay this is four issues four issues of 22 pages that straight away means you've got to start making decisions Mm -hmm. um, and it stops you from uh, procrastinating too much yeah and i think uh, one of the things you said there um that was pretty interesting was that you used the the eight panel uh page to to deliberately slow the the reader down to to yeah. make them uh you know really concentrate on um what was going on slow down uh and that's one of the interesting things that you can do with 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 a comic like is you can control or yeah. try to control the the pace at which somebody reads it uh, but anybody watching a movie or a tv show like all of that stuff is delivered in the same fashion um, at the same speed to, to everybody, but you can, you can slow time down a little bit. And, you know, with you guys telling a time travel story, um, that's a pretty <laughs> yeah. interesting uh, thing that you can use yeah, to your yeah. advantage in comics. 
we're both massive proponents of Scott McLeod and a few months ago he was over here in the UK for a convention and we both went to see that and it was the best thing at the show because he he's the master of, of, of comics he really is he understands mm -hmm. the, the format like nobody else in the business and he was doing a talk about um, signs that you see in buildings you know like a fire exit or you know, don't use the lift if there's a fire, and all this kind of really basic stuff that's all to do with symbols and symbology. And then he started playing around with the form and talking around it and explaining it and showing you what you can do and how people do different things in different countries and the perception of all of that. And it just, every time I see him talk at one of these things, it absolutely blows my mind and makes me think about how the actual comic is, how we're laying it out. What are we doing with the speed? What are we doing with pacing? And you're right you can control time in a comic like nothing else. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. And I think as well, although, you know, obviously we work, you're working with an artist, you are collaborating as a team, you've got more control probably in this meeting. So going back to your earlier question about screenplays. Um, if I write a screenplay and it's a minute on, on, on a minute a page, it still comes down to the director's choice and also the cinematographers. Like to me, there's some really good films. Sometimes you'll be, you know, a really long take, they'll hold on a scene. And there's a, there's a point, I think, with our physiology as humans, there's a point where if you're looking at the same thing for a certain amount of time, once it goes past a certain point, you start to feel naturally uncomfortable because you want to move on. Um, and, but that is always in the control of the director, the cinematographer, or the editor. Whereas with comics, you can do that. And I think going back to Tom King, there are times in um, Mr. Miracle where you, as a reader, you almost want to to move to another place, but you can't, and you do feel trapped. And then you, that, that is one of my favorite books of all time because, and uh, me and Steve and other friends have talked about it at length because the way it, the pacing and the way that book makes you feel, you suddenly become like you're the character by the end. It's one of those books that made me want to write more, but also maybe just to stop. Because <laughs> um, it's just so beautifully done and the way that it plays with the form, but it does all that, but while maintaining you know, a grid structure pretty much. It's, um, yeah. So between Scott McLeod and that book, um, yeah, we'll, 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 it's given us plenty of, uh, inspiration. That's for sure. Okay. Uh, so I have a, uh, another question comparing uh, screenwriting to comics. Uh, so do you ever with your background in screenwriting, do you ever, when you're writing a comic, do you ever call out like the, the camera angle, if you're writing it and you're like, you know, I really feel like, at this point, it would be uh, best if we used a, a wide shot, an upshot. Um, do you ever do you ever do that, or do you always? I I don't anymore. When I first started, because like you say, that was what I knew, and also it's like, well, I'm, especially these, I'm, like, I'm emailing this script to someone in another country who I've never met, so I've got to be, I've got to know exactly what I want. And for there are a few stories that I got exactly what I asked for back, and then I realised why my my instincts weren't necessarily correct in terms of shot, in terms of what would be shot choice. So it's taken years, but I've kind of, I don't really do that anymore. What I do, there's, there's something I've always done in scripts and I've, I've been told by different people in the industry. Some say, I love that. That's a brilliant way to go. I know um, the artist Sarah Pacelli talks about it a lot as being a good thing, but I've had other people say, why on earth are you doing this? But I'll try to do is let the artist know the reason for the panel or what the emotional uh, importance is as much as the visuals 
And that certainly as I've started honing my script, so I might just say, you know, what they're feeling. And people are like, why are you saying what they're feeling? You need to just say what their face looks like. And I'm like, well, I don't really care with what their specific facial image is. I don't really care where we can see them from. I just want you to know that they feel uneasy. And so you do that and suddenly the artist decides that actually like a top down shot is actually, or, or something, they'll come up with something that I could never have thought of. The only time I'll ever specifically say I want a, the equivalent, I guess, of a camera angle is if there's a very, very important reason for it. And I'll mm. always usually try and put that in the notes. So like, because I might say, yeah, we need to go really tight on this person's face. You can't see any of the background around them. And the reason for that is this thing that's going to happen in another issue or this, we want, this is a recurring theme or a motif. Um, or something like that. But I think, but again, that's just years of doing it with, and with, you know, when you work with lots of different artists, no, no two want to work exactly the same way, but it's like anything. It's like, like filmmakers, like we've, there are a few artists that I've worked with multiple times um, because you get to the point of shorthand. Um, you just send them a script and they just know. And I would rather someone understood the tone and the, overall drive behind a script and then went with it than they meticulously stepped did everything that I wanted having said that I've also had experiences with people just completely drawing stuff that's totally different than I've than I've written um which is fine because I'm not precious but then you go well actually the story doesn't work anymore so there's a fine line I think which is why it's good to have collaborators that you can have a meaningful dialogue with back and forth um, which is, I guess, the good thing about indie comics in a way. You're not being paired up with somebody by someone else. You're not having a really minimal kind of input because of time scale and because of um, deadlines and stuff. You actually can get under the skin of the project a little bit more and know it. So, yeah. So the short answer is, no, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, again, I find uh, from doing these interviews that it, that's another common story that uh, I think we all sort of start off, uh, you know, as control freaks, uh, you know, directing. And then as we, as we move on, we, we develop a little bit more, um, confidence that, the that the, the team is going to, to make some decisions. And I feel like also that the, the artists enjoy, um, being part of the, uh, the creative process and, and, and being able to pick some of the angles that makes them, uh, more invested in the story uh so that's that's a common thing that i that i've found doing these interviews and i think as well like i know like when you first write send trips to an artist especially if the artist is more experienced than you there can be an element of oh but you're being very rigid what you're thinking but the only reason people do that is fear and the only reason i ever did it because if you i particularly we're all doing it for the love we're all doing it as indie comics this isn't our our you know our profession it's it's something that we're doing mm -hmm. in our own time because it's what we love and what we really enjoy i feel really bad giving too many notes um so there's an element when i started was like well if i make if i write these 70 page scripts with every detail then the what person can just draw it and they won't have, i won't have to be this bad guy who has to go back and say oh no change it whereas more importantly is the two-way dialogue you both understand the story and then i say this on most books anyway is having that thumbnail thumbnail to layout layout to pencils so that by the time that something's being inked it's 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 you know it's what you're all expecting it to be really um and i guess it's on both um the writing side and the art side it's and i'm a big proponent of this for my day job and for my everything i do creatively really is is tell people why you're doing something 
because if you don't that's when conflict will arise so if you're like i want it to be five panels and then oh but i want to do this angle if there's no reason then you how can you how can the other person make a judgment call all they're doing is interpreting your what you've asked them to do and putting their own take on it so i i'm a big proponent of the first question should always be why Mm -hmm. so if someone comes back to you why have you decided to make to do it this way of like oh because i wanted to achieve this oh okay you want to achieve that well i've got another idea and that's and again with a co-writer and with artists that's the best way to work because if you all understand why you're doing something then you can actually work through any issues you have or any any kind of complications but if it's purely based on just um the hard facts of a script or the layout then it just it just becomes really dry and it takes some of the fun out of it really because it becomes kind of um just like a, almost like a factory production line rather than a creative process it goes back to something as well that um, one of your previous guests you've had on jim gibbons mm-hmm. we worked with him on another book he, we basically had this thing we weren't quite happy with it so we wanted some input from an editor and we knew jim and he came in and one of the first questions he asked was why why this why this and he kept poke basically he kept poking us to so that we could explain why we'd done the things that we'd done and most of them we did know but we didn't have it down on the page or we hadn't expressed it clearly and a couple of times we didn't know and we had to go in and think about it and it gave us a deeper understanding of what we were doing. So it's a case of you find an artist, you find a creative team that you trust. Once you get, once you get past the first kind of hurdles of, right, they're doing, doing something new and something different, then you start paring down your script. And I love it when you see some comic book creators talking about this guy I now, you know, he's like my brother because I understand him. I can pitch a short script. I can do this. And they go away and come back, and it's perfect. It's exactly what I wanted, but nothing like I imagined. The, the Scott trust. The Scott Snyder Greg Capullo relationship has always fascinated me because mm-hmm. they they did a lot of interviews when they first worked together, and apparently Scott Snyder was very much, I specifically want this, mm-hmm. and on every panel, and I think Greg Capullo pushed pushed back very hard i did very uh, early yeah yeah and then when no kid <laughs> and then their dynamic completely shifted and it was like yeah i get it now yep and then they end up creating um brilliant work as a, as a result of that really yeah i think the 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 story i heard was uh you know scott snyder sent off like these detailed scripts and uh greg came back and was like yeah i'm not doing that and then Scott might have brought up the fact that he was like a uh, Eisner award-winning writer and Scott, or I'm sorry, Greg was like, yeah, I'm not really that impressed by that. Uh, and then from there, they, uh, they, uh, they, they, they found a way to, to work together. So, yeah. And, uh, so yeah. looking at flux, this is a, uh, a four issue series. Um, uh, so do you, and um, this is this is looking through the Kickstarter page. This is one. It looks like you guys have already done some work on two and three. Um, are there any plans with this being a time travel story uh, once you complete that uh, fourth issue to uh, possibly uh, come back to this world? Oh, that's a good question. We haven't really thought about it. It's okay. uh, so the artwork on issue two is done. We need to get it. Um, colored and lettered and a cover issue three they're just wrapping up the art now and then we'll do the same so we're we're kind of really focusing on on pushing the rest of the issues through next year Mm -hmm. i guess it's a question of once we've got the fourth issue out and then we've done a collection we'll think about it do we want to go do we want to do something sideways do we want to go back in time do we 
revisit this world because it the idea just from talking it through there's a lot of layers and there's a lot of things you can do with it and we've explored one particular mm. area so it's a case of if we come up with something and we think we're not going to be treading over the same ground or doing the same kind of thing then it's definitely something we could revisit but at this stage we hadn't really discussed it no and i think as well um from the other things that we worked on from the challenge we both have is we have a lot of ideas and when you talk to someone else who you respect and you they come up with more ideas and you layer it on and i think when we first started working together just to use like the um the media analogy we were always kind of writing tv series in a way it was like well it'll be an on, a mini series but it's really part of another mini series part of another series it's an on, it could be an ongoing but i think what we tried to do with this project and a couple of more recent ones as well um from the writing side is go right look we've got to rein this in we need a beginning middle and end we need to treat it more like a film than a tv series if we do more in the world great but we've got to have something that is a um satisfying read regardless so yeah i think it and it depends on how it's received as well because like anything you don't know until it's out there mm -hmm. i mean the kickstarter so far is doing okay so and people have always you know liked the idea as I say we had loads of public interest initially so it's it's not been a book that we've had much pushback on um occasionally people will be like oh it's time travel it's like well it is about time travel but it's not it is and it isn't it's it's that's kind of just an aspect of this story. So yeah, I think we potentially could revisit it, but um, the most important thing for us, I guess, in the short term is, is just getting these four issues out there so people can read what we've done. Very cool. Well, I, uh, I am very excited for this book. Uh, I, I've backed it. And as I said, uh, as a, a guy who uh, writes science fiction stories, a few that have dabbled in, in time travel, I'm uh, I'm very excited for this book. Um, why don't you guys let people know where they can follow you on social media, uh, any websites or anything like that, so they can keep up to date on this Kickstarter and, and other projects you might have. Um, Steve, why don't you, you start us off, please? Yeah, sure. So I'm on Twitter. It's at Steve Ariane. Um, my website is just stephen-ariane.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook and Goodreads. Um, and as Pete mentioned, we do an action movie podcast together uh, called Bags of Action, where we just talk about uh, a cool action movie that we've seen. And we're also on YouTube with that as well. Very cool. And Pete, how about you? Yeah, so I'm on, I was an early adopter on Twitter. I actually got my own name. So I'm, yeah, I'm at Pete Rogers on Twitter. Uh, my website is peterogers.co.uk. Um, but yeah, also on, on Facebook and Instagram. I can't remember some variation of my name on Instagram, um, which I'm quite new to Instagram. Basically my 12 year old is still teaching me how to use it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and just mocking me for why have you used that hashtag? Um, yeah. So that's pretty much where you, where you, where you can find me. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I will put links to definitely the Kickstarter, definitely the, the your social media your website uh your podcast and your youtube in the in the show notes for for this episode so anybody listening that wants to give give you a follow or check out the the podcast can do that um if anybody wants to give us a follow uh the the podcast is on twitter at construct we are also on instagram at constructing comics pod 
um, and we are on Facebook at Facebook forward slash Constructing Comics. We have a YouTube channel under the same name of Constructing Comics, where we sometimes do more of our visually heavy episodes, uh, creator spotlight, page breakdowns, uh, issue breakdowns. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for, for listening and uh, encourage everybody to go out and make some, make some comics. And we'll be back with a, another episode very soon.